TikTok and Congress facing off. TikTok CEO grilled on Capitol Hill today, saying the app is not a national security threat to the U.S. Lawmakers not convinced. From children dead after viral challenges to millions of young Americans vying to keep the app, TikTok is back under scrutiny. To ban or not to ban is still the question. As user data concerns rise, TikTok offering a new solution, Project Texas. But will that really safeguard U.S. data? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we dive into today's news, make sure to use the link below to subscribe to our newsletter. Each week, we'll round up the highlights and controversies happening around China and the world and share an exclusive behind-the-scenes snapshot with our readers. Keep an eye out. The newsletter will land in your inbox Friday morning. Data harvesting. While that's the norm for social media apps, concerns are rising around TikTok and whether China has access to it. TikTok CEO grilled on Capitol Hill Thursday, telling lawmakers the app is not a national security threat. The U.S. is considering a ban on the app. That's over fears China might use it for spying, noting TikTok's Chinese parent company, ByteDance. We do not trust TikTok will ever embrace American values. Values for freedom, human rights, and innovation. TikTok has repeatedly chosen the path for more control, more surveillance, and more manipulation. Your platform should be banned. U.S. officials are concerned that access could lead to espionage. Others worry that the Chinese regime might use the app to spread propaganda to a U.S. audience. At the heart of both fears is an underlying concern that any company doing business in China ultimately must abide by Chinese Communist Party laws. It's not that complex. Yes or no, do they have access to user data? We have, after Project Texas is done, the answer is no. Under questioning, TikTok CEO said ByteDance employees can access U.S. data, adding that will be possible until Project Texas is complete. That covers the $1.5 billion TikTok is spending to overhaul the app and make it more secure. The idea being to firewall American user data from unauthorized foreign access. Unfortunately, this is one of the... Congressman Bob Latta spoke during the hearing of a 10-year-old girl who suffocated herself doing a so-called blackout challenge from videos posted on the app. And Congressman Gus Bilirakis grilled Chu with questions about the company's responsibility. Your technology is literally leading to death. Mr. Chu, yes or no, do you have full responsibility for your algorithms used by TikTok to prioritize content to its users? Yes or no, please. Uh, Congressman, I'll, I'll just like to, if respectfully, if you don't mind, I would just like to start by saying it's devastating to hear about the news of, yes, as a yes. father myself, this is Sir, tragic. yes or no, I'll repeat the question. Do you have full responsibility over the algorithms used by TikTok to prioritize content to its users? Yes or no, please. Uh, Congressman, we, we do take these issues very yeah, seriously. Yeah, yes or no. And we do provide resources for anyone who types in anything that Sir, is Sir, yes or no. I see you're not willing to answer the question or take any responsibility for your parents' companies, the technology and the harms it creates. It's just very, very sad, very sad. 
Nearly half the U.S. population uses TikTok and two-thirds of American youth, with the app boasting over 150 million monthly active users. Influencers protested restrictions on TikTok on Wednesday outside of Congress. Following the TikTok CEO's congressional hearing, we sat down with David Stilwell, former Assistant Secretary of State, for his take. So let's zoom in on Capitol Hill. TikTok CEO is testifying before lawmakers today. Why is this such a big deal? It seems it could be banned. It could not be banned. What's happening here? Well, it's a juxtaposition of our wide open democratic system being uh, abused by a communist um, controlling authoritarian system. They have full access to all our information, our people. TikTok was a great stalking horse. I mean, give them credit. It was a great idea, and and they created something that is truly addictive. Uh, and so, and then finally, these people all claim not to have uh, direct connections with the Communist Party, but it doesn't take much scratching to see that they do. So the uh, congressional attention is very welcome, and I think if it continues, it started with you know Senator Ted Cruz in October of 21, actually, when this idea first came up a year and a half ago. Um, and he had the the American face of TikTok in front of him. The guy would not answer his questions. Extremely evasive. Clearly, there's more going on. In general, you mentioned how popular it is. And the CEO also noted that there's about 150 million active users in America each month. So what are the dangers here, especially maybe in the political realm? This is information warfare. I talk about this all the time. When we talk about war with China, everybody automatically thinks shooting at each other over Taiwan. But that's not how the PRC thinks about this. They think about it in terms of information warfare, economic warfare, and this has elements of all of those things, political warfare. Um, it would have been nice if we could have access to the algorithm or anything that comes out of the PRC now. Before we accept it into our systems, we validate, verify that it doesn't have some uh, code in it that is hurting us, that's sharing American information unnecessarily. But we allowed it in, and now we have to get it out. I say again, India managed to kick 200 apps, not just TikTok. TikTok and 19, 199 other apps, they blocked. Uh, congressional language could easily block it, never mind what the CEO says. All we have to do is pass a law that defends our information space from the uh, PRC. And on that note, the TikTok CEO is doubling down today on Capitol Hill. He's saying this is not a national security threat. What's your take on this? How believable is this? The you know, for 40 years, we believed everything uh, the PRC said. We took it at face value. We wanted to believe that they were being square, upright, forthright, honest. Uh, I think the pandemic went a long way to making us second guess that. No human human transmission. Of course there was. Uh, of course it was out of control and, and the PRC made sure that the rest of the world got sick so it didn't suffer by itself. That in itself should have made uh, Americans, especially our government, question anything that comes out of the CCP. This is what Pompeo said it in uh, California. Distrust and then verify. This is how the system works in the PRC. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. There's no penalties for lying, et cetera, et cetera. It's a massive cultural difference between a trust-based society and a society that has no trust. We have to actually distrust.
Businessmen in China are treading lightly around the Chinese Communist Party. Recently, TikTok parent company ByteDance came under scrutiny for its loyalty to the CCP. But in an interview with the New York Times, TikTok CEO said his program has not disclosed any information to China. No foreign government has asked us for U.S. user data before. Really, they haven't. And if they did, we would say no. But what happens if a Chinese tycoon says no to Beijing? Jack Ma was said to be one of the richest men in China. The business magnate is known for his technology conglomerate Alibaba. But all that glory went down the drain after a controversial speech. In front of a group of prominent figures, he pointed a finger at the Chinese financial system. There is no risk in China's financial system because there is no system. What our nation lacks is the risk in a healthy financial system. We need to establish a healthy financial system. In 2020, Ma faced an antitrust investigation from Chinese regulators, losing $12 billion over the course of a few months. Ma mysteriously went missing later that year. And following his later resurface, he now keeps a low public profile. Likewise, Chinese business tycoon Zhen Zhiqiang was known for his sharp criticism of the CCP. In today's China, our only social responsibility is to have all of you guys stand up and tear down this wall in front of us. Then we establish a social democratic system. Zhen was sentenced to 18 years in jail in 2020. The Beijing-controlled court charged him for corruption. But just prior, he had written an essay criticizing the CCP's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. In it, Zhen targeted Xi Jinping, calling him, quote, a clown who stripped naked and insisted on continuing being emperor. He was investigated for what Beijing called suspected serious disciplinary violations. With TikTok, AI chatbots and microchips making headlines, we'd like to dive deeper into exactly what Beijing's big data hunt is, what its artificial intelligence ambitions look like, and why they matter for the West. Let's zoom in. China has vowed to become the world leader in AI development by 2030 and is pouring huge investment dollars into its development, just like Washington. But funding is only half the battle. Money hires top talent and buys cutting-edge computers, while data is needed to teach this AI. Large troves of data pulled from China's automated mass surveillance systems, Chinese companies, and other countries, sometimes illicitly. The first mention of China's big data strategy appeared in a 2014 Communist Party report. The next year, Beijing published its first planning guideline on how to collect it, calling for databases on population, companies, natural resources, tourism, education, and even medical. In 2016, Beijing launched a five-year plan to implement the national big data strategy. But does data become a weapon? An article by Brookings TechStream describes one scenario, personal information, location data, and facial recognition. Those details define who a person is and could be used to identify key persons, like U.S. service members or government officials. From there, those who might be susceptible to influence or recruiting by China could be singled out and weaponized. To combat that future, experts say keeping a lead in the AI tech race should be a top priority. Next up is the need to push for strong privacy protections that limit U.S. user data collection. After that, analysts say lawmakers should treat U.S. data like a national security asset and block Beijing from getting it. Beyond that, they call for more domestic tech regulation and to give other nations an alternative to making deals with China that could open them up to data harvesting. All of that to deny China resources to educate its AI. 
As Washington hunts down the origin of COVID-19, a new discovery in China is raising eyebrows. Experts say it might hint at Beijing's next move. Here's more. China disclosed its first ever case of co-infection with two Omicron subvariants. China's CDC Weekly published the report last Friday. It cites a sample collected at a hospital in the western metropolis of Chongqing. In mid-February, researchers confirmed the patient was infected with two mutated strains of Omicron at the same time, one of them causing more than 90 percent of virus cases in Chongqing. Though infrequent, co-infections do occur among COVID-19 patients. Scientists often pay more attention to those cases to see whether they'll develop recombinations that may spawn new pathogenic viruses. But here's the puzzling part. The Chinese CDC report seems to gloss over this key aspect. What's more, the co-infection was confirmed in February, but not publicized until one month later. That's as patients again flood Chinese hospitals, following what Beijing called a decisive victory against COVID-19. Authorities are calling it a flu peak, but experts question whether this is another name for the still rampant COVID-19, given the similarity of their symptoms. If you look at the data from all over the world, uh, no country showing that the um, uh, influenza A uh, in this 2022 to uh, 2023 season have any unusual uh, pathogenicities and leading to uh, much more severe symptoms. We didn't see any report from any other countries. So why China uh, seeing so many people even showing uh, white lungs uh, in March and the government claim it was due to the uh, influenza A? Uh, so it's really questionable. The white lungs phenomenon happens when liquid sits in the lungs, making the organ appear white on CT scans. It's rare among flu patients, but relatively common among the COVID-19 patients of China's most recent infection wave. Lin said that he suspects with this report, Beijing may be trying to shift blame from its mishandling of the outbreak onto the sophistication of the virus itself. And there are so many different strains of COVID still circulating in China, and the Chinese government is focusing on covering up the data instead of helping people to uh, get prevention, better prevention, better treatment for the COVID. And so if you do poorly on the prevention and the virus still spreading, maybe you are incubating a more problematic virus. Lin added that China's economy cannot afford another round of the country's strict zero COVID-19 policy, which largely functioned by putting entire cities under lockdown. With millions of jobs already lost to supply chain shifts, news of another outbreak may worsen a deepening socioeconomic crisis. Worldwide, several million people died of the virus. While China's true COVID-19 death toll remains unknown, given Beijing's history of underreporting virus data. Coming up, microchip wars between the U.S. and China are reaching a new level. It's a battle that some say could decide the future. What's at stake? We sat down with Stephen Ezell, Vice President of Global Innovation Policy in the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, for a breakdown. That and more in just a minute, here on China in Focus. With China's ongoing aggression in the Indo-Pacific, a top U.S. official says no signs point to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan right now. On Thursday, U.S. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said, I don't certainly see any imminent threat. Um, uh, hopefully that is something that would never materialize. Kendall also addressed China's hostility in the Indo-Pacific. Chinese behavior has not in many cases been consistent with uh, keeping a stable situation here and uh, not appearing to be threatening to some of the other nations in the region. 
Meanwhile, Taiwan's armed forces just held joint anti-landing exercises aiming to counter any potential attack. In the north of the island, soldiers pretending to be enemy forces approached rural residential areas. Awaiting them, tanks and armored vehicles. Near Taipei, Taiwan's capital, troops conducted a refueling drill featuring four Apache attack helicopters with emphasis on speed and safety. Military tensions between Beijing and Taipei are at their highest point in decades. China sees the independently governed island as part of its territory. Beijing's One China principle seeks to bring Taiwan under its control by force if necessary. Taiwan has never been ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. Taiwan remains a key U.S. ally in the Indo-Pacific, though the two don't maintain official diplomatic ties. The U.S. is now shoring up alliances within the region in an effort to push back against China's aggression. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to bat for the Biden administration on foreign policy Wednesday. He defended a $63 billion budget request for fiscal year 2024. Blinken says it will strengthen U.S. efforts to outcompete the Chinese Communist Party. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has more on Blinken's testimony. Fund as well. Blinken fielded numerous questions about Russia and China during the Senate hearing. The budget will sustain our security, economic, energy, and humanitarian support for Ukraine to ensure that President Putin's war remains a strategic failure. He stood by his previous comments that sanctions on Russia are having a crippling effect. Senator Bill Haggerty asked Blinken what Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping meant when he said communist China and Russia are going to be pushing for changes not seen for a hundred years. I think when it comes to China, they actually want a world order, but an illiberal one. Mm -hmm. We continue to stand strongly for a liberal one. Blinken says President Biden remains committed to the Indo-Pacific region. Which is why this proposal asks for an 18 percent increase in our budget for that region over FY23. The Secretary of State noted Taiwan has boosted its defense spending by 11 percent. He says the U.S. is focusing on sales of military equipment to Taiwan and working to address challenges around production capacity. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Chip wars between the U.S. and China heating up. The winner of the contest may hold the future of the global status quo in its hands. Biden administration released new restrictions on the sector to block the most cutting-edge chips from landing in Beijing's hands. This on top of the CHIPS Act from last year. But what impact will the new rules really have? We spoke to Stephen Ezell, Vice President of Global Innovation Policy in the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, for his take. Stephen Ezell, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. So there seems to be a lot of focus on semiconductors or microchips. It seems, you know, last August, the U.S. passed the CHIPS Act to put $52 billion to build up U.S. chip industry. And President Biden is setting these new guardrails to kind of make sure Beijing doesn't get their hands on the latest advanced chips. So to begin, why are chips so important? Well, really, semiconductors represent the single most fundamentally important product in the modern digital global economy. Uh, semiconductors uh, drive everything from our cars to our computers and phones to uh, the entire panoply of weapon systems that drives a country's national security. And when we look at the future of digital technology, everything from quantum to artificial intelligence, uh, semiconductors are at the heart of that. So really, national leadership in semiconductors 
is absolutely indispensable, both so that downstream industries who use those semiconductors can make world-leading products, but also so that countries can field, you know, militaries and and uh, national security platforms that um, you know ensure uh, country security. And Stephen, it seems with the new rules being laid out, it doesn't exactly restrict companies, U.S. companies, from stopping their chip facilities in China. How do you see that playing out going forward? Will companies try and play both sides? Well, it's perhaps important to take it one step back and, and understand why policymakers chose to implement the $52 billion chips legislation. Uh, and the primary reason is that over the past 30 years, from 1990 to 2020, uh, America's share of global manufacturing of semiconductor chips declined by 70%. When we look at uh, companies that have current operations in China to make so-called legacy chips, those at uh, the 28 nanometer or higher level, uh, they're going to be restricted from not increasing the capacity of those plants by more than 10%. Uh, there are also restrictions in the guardrails on the ability of these companies to do any type of uh, joint research uh, with foreign entities of concern. And on that last part, it seems one U.S. company, NVIDIA, is trying to change their flagship chips, the H100 and 8100, to a new one called H800, which can be legally exported to China. What do you make of all of this? Yeah, what NVIDIA did was, as I understand, uh, with the H800 version of the chip, they reduced the chip-to-chip -chip data transfer rate to about half the rate of their flagship H100 chip, so it's not as, as uh, capable or sophisticated. It's very important that, that policymakers uh, really try very hard to uh, make distinctions between uh, uh, the end uses and end users of semiconductor chips uh, in China. Which, what actors are consuming these chips and to what purposes? And we should be trying to uh, ensure that we can keep channels available for uh, chips made here to be sold for civilian and commercial uses in China. Stephen Ezel, thank you so much for joining us. All right, thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.